Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. If you listened to our show last week, you are lucky enough to hear Dr. Allison S. Smith, Community Engagement Strategist and Brownfield's Program Manager in Louisville Metro's Office of Advanced Planning and Sustainability. She spoke at Bellarmine University on October 17, 2019, on the topic of Louisville Metro's Action on Sustainability. So, check out last week's show on our website, go to forwardradio.org slash benchtalk, and look for the November 11, 2019 episode. She talked about the student-led climate strike that took place in Louisville on September 20th of 2019, and at that event, Mayor Greg Fisher signed a pledge to declare a climate emergency for Louisville which elevates the issue of climate change to the same urgency as a 911 call to the police or to the fire department. Now, before that time, Mayor Fisher had already founded the Office of Sustainability. That was back in 2012. And in 2016, he committed Louisville, along with many other cities throughout the world, to the Paris Climate Accord to further reduce global warming. But this commitment he made in October is still quite significant. Dr. Allison Smith spent the entire episode talking about the different ways that Metro Louisville is working towards meeting that pledge. Now, this week's show includes the second part of her talk, which was about brownfields. Now, a common definition of brownfields is a previously developed plot of land that is somehow contaminated with some kind of hazardous chemical. Many times the businesses that originally caused the contamination, it might be a gas station or a factory or a dry cleaning company, they've gone out of business and the owners have vanished. It's hard to find someone to take responsibility for that land and the city ends up with a vacant, blighted, ugly, empty lot that's not adding anything to the economy and it could actually be hurting the health of the citizens who live near it. So here is Dr. Allison Smith of Louisville Metro's Office of Advanced Planning and Sustainability talking about brownfields in Louisville and what can be done about them. Then at the end of her talk is a question and answer period. It's not just about brownfields, but they also talk about the tree canopy in Louisville, urban agriculture, and how Louisville can further address climate change. So for the second part of my talk, I want to talk about brownfields. So this is what I actually do. That's what I was hired to do. And to me, I guess a lot of people don't see the connection, but to me this makes perfect sense. That by doing brownfields, I'm doing a lot of community engagement, right? Brownfields are typically in underserved communities that have been affected by things like redlining and urban renewal and the interstate highway system. And all of these federal policies that really led to the patterns of segregation that we see in our city. That has led to a lot of environmental justice issues. So in, for example, West Louisville, we have lots of residences who are on the fence line of industries that are producing pollutants that have to be regulated, right? And so that's an environmental justice issue. 
Brownfields also mean cleaning up a contaminated site so that we have healthier air, water, and soil, right? But contamination on a brownfield can impact all of those factors and can have a huge impact on public health. So to me, these all kind of tie together beautifully, and I'll give you some examples of that. First of all, just to take a step back, brownfields are contaminated sites. The EPA definition is a property that has not been reused because it's contaminated or people think it's contaminated, right? So there may be a property that had a factory on it. It may be perfectly clean, but people perceive that it could be contaminated and so no one will buy it, no one will redevelop it. It ends up sitting vacant, right? And then there are ones that are contaminated and nobody wants to take that on. So especially in these underserved neighborhoods, now you have, you know, not only all of these other issues, but you've got these big vacant sites that, you know, draw illicit activity, they draw down property values, and they have a huge impact on the residential areas nearby. So my job is to identify brownfields, get them assessed so we know what's on them, uh, get them cleaned up, sometimes with EPA funds, sometimes privately financed, and then to get them into reuse, get them redeveloped and back in a productive use. So common contaminants that I see on brownfields come from very common uses. So things like dry cleaners. Um, dry cleaners use really nasty chemicals. That's, that's why you have that really strong smell. So think back to the 1950s. Uh, there was no EPA. There was really no environmental regulation. So if you had a little bit of cleaning solution left, you didn't want to pour it down the sink, so what did you do with it? You poured it out the back door, right? You, you disposed of it on your property. And again, this was not regulated for a long time. So what we see a lot of times when we do assessments is that, oh, well, there was a dry cleaner here back in 1950. You will still find contamination from that dry cleaner. Same with auto repair, metal finishing. You know, it doesn't have to be the current use. That's why when we assess a brownfield, we go back in history. We look at the maps that show and the directories that show us what was on that site going back 100 years because that could explain contamination that we see today. So dealing with things like metals, VOCs, PAHs, PCBs, right, all of the acronyms of nasty chemicals that, you know, most people don't want to be around. So I'll give you a couple of examples. This was an lg manufactured gas plant. Um, it's there on uh, 7th and Ormsby. Um, it had been sitting vacant for quite a while. The soil around it was contaminated. Um, the groundwater under it had contamination, and the interior of the building had lead and asbestos. And that's really nobody's fault. That was just building practice back at the time. You used lead paint, you used asbestos. But it sat there vacant because it's a big job to clean that up, remediate it, and get it ready for use. This is it now. This is the Edison Center. The soil contamination was capped. So in some cases, we have to actually remove the soil and take it off site. Other times, we can contain that contamination on site by capping it with the building, with the parking lot. And in my mind, removing it is, is always the, the best possible solution, but then we're really just taking it to someone else's neighborhood, right? To a landfill that will accept it, but now it's affecting someone else. So if we can manage it on site, we can reduce the public health risks. To me, that's, that's a good thing. It also saves money so that we are more likely to be able to get it redeveloped. This currently houses about 300 Metro employees, um, Resilience Community Services, the County Clerk's Office. And because of this Brownfields redevelopment, we got Northline Donuts, which never would have happened as long as that building sat vacant, right? So Brownfields redevelopment spurs economic growth in the area around it, right? Now you've got 300 people coming every day that need to eat lunch and they want donuts for breakfast. And so that was provided there on that site. And they're really good donuts. Okay, so I love telling this story. Um, this is Heritage West, also known as the 
former food port site, also known as National Tobacco Company. So this is Muhammad Ali Boulevard. These are railroad tracks. This is 30th Street, and this is Market, right? So it's a, a large 24-acre site, one of the largest vacant contiguous properties in West Louisville. Uh, like I said, it was the former National Tobacco Company. So when you process tobacco, you use a lot of nasty chemicals. And that's really where a lot of this contamination came from, as well as the rail line, right? So you get a lot of petroleum contamination from the rail line, from the rail spur that was there. And so, you know, here are some of the results that we found. Um, it, it wasn't the worst in Louisville, but it did have things like PAHs above residential limits. It had cobalt um, and thallium in a couple of samples, um, so it, it needed to be remediated, and it had sat empty for about 10 years. Now, this is a metro-owned property, so we took over this property from National Tobacco Company, so it's controlled by Louisville Metro. We were approached a few years ago by a nonprofit who said, we have an idea for a food port on this site that would address not only getting the site cleaned up, but would address some issues that the neighborhood is facing. So the food port idea is that it's basically food processing, right? So local farmers and other growers would bring their produce and their products to the food port. It would be processed, it would be packaged, and then sent out for sale. That supports local farmers. Um, it provides jobs on the site. They also wanted to include, you know, a small grocery store. This is a food desert area, community space, um, lots of community benefits, in addition to cleaning up the site. However, they really didn't do a lot of that community engagement and outreach to the neighborhood until they were well into the project. They eventually brought in a biodigester. So the idea being that, okay, we're going to be processing food. We're going to have a lot of food waste, right? You're going to have potato peels and coffee grounds and all this stuff. Um, instead of sending it to the landfill, how can we close that loop? So they said, well, let's bring in an anaerobic digester. Now, as a scientist, I love the idea of anaerobic digestion. I think it's fantastic. It produces renewable natural gas, and it's, you know, it closes that loop. However, think about the environment that this is in, right? If it was in my neighborhood, it would be like the only thing I had to worry about, right? So they're producing methane. There's a small, small possibility that, you know, there could be issues with that, but that's the only thing I would have to worry about. At the site in West Louisville, though, we're near Rubbertown, which has 17 manufacturing facilities. We have lots of other environmental issues. And so the neighbors felt like this was one more environmental concern that they would be worried about, and it is very, very close to residential areas. So after a lot of contention in the community, the biodigester was withdrawn, and unfortunately the food port project did not come to fruition um, due to financing issues. And Louisville Metro thought, okay, um, we need to take a step back and think about how we deal with redevelopment on public property um, and how we address the concerns of the people who live near it, right? Because at the end of the day, we're public servants and it's publicly owned. So we worked with the West Louisville Community Council to do some visioning with the neighborhood and said, look, we're, we're starting from scratch. A food port's done, but we still need to redevelop this site. What do you want to see there? We had a no board and we had a yes board, and people put exactly what they did or did not want to see on that site. And we also generated lots of ideas about the values of the community that they wanted to see addressed and what that could be. So things like a sports center, locally owned black small business, train centers, biotech research, sit down restaurants, lots of community needs that could be addressed on that site. The site also needed a name, right? We couldn't call it the former food port forever. So working with the community council, we said, we want the community to brand this site, 
to name it and to claim it so that it's it's community owned and they have a stake in it. So they did a lot of outreach, they voted on a name, and they came up with Heritage West to call it. Then they had an art contest to kind of brand the values or the, the, the vision for that site. This was done by an artist named Victor Sweat, who's well-known here in Louisville. Um, and it kind of represents the things that make Louisville Louisville, right, and the heritage of West Louisville. So there was a big billboard at the site. Metro paid to have this um, image put up on it so that the site had a name, right? It was more than a vacant lot. It was a place that is important. The city's process for redevelopment is to issue what's called a solicitation of interest. So we put together um, information about the site. We said to developers, here's what the community said they want and what they don't want. Here are our values. Give us your ideas for what you would do at that site. And they did. Uh, we got four really good responses. One was a biotechnology research park. One was um, a local cooperative grocery, which really just needed this one little space, right, that they put in a proposal, and it was a great time for them to kind of get their name out there. Um, the Heritage Gardens would have been a mix of urban agriculture and outdoor activities. And then the Urban League proposed an indoor track and field facility. So we went through a review process with the residents for the first time. I know this may not seem like a big deal, um, but it was. We told the developers, you need to stand up in front of the community and tell them what your proposal is and answer their questions. We'd never required them to do that before. Um, we had a huge turnout of about 150 people. They were able to interact with the developers who made those proposals, ask questions, give feedback, which then we all, we collected all of it and uh, made it public. Uh, we ended up selecting the Urban League's proposal for an indoor track and field facility. Remember the top 10 list? First one was sports complex. Um, so it, it met that criteria of something that was wanted and needed in the neighborhood. We also don't have an indoor track in this region. So UofL, JCP, nobody has an indoor track. Um, our high schoolers run in hallways in the winter. So this was a huge need. And the Urban League had commitments from U.S. Track and Field, the high school sports alliances to say, yes, you build it, we will bring our events there, right? Because uh, there's not any other in this region. So you have an outdoor track. Um, the site is going to be mostly capped. Here's an in, the indoor facility, um, the parking lot, a potential hotel, and then commercial right here. In the off-season, so track runs from like November to March, the indoor track season. The off-season, this is a 4,000-seat event space, which we don't have that size event space in Louisville. So boxing, wrestling, concerts can also take place in the off-season. So the site will be capped. Um, there will be some soil removed, but most of it is going to be capped, right? So we're going to bring in soil and put in this nice track. This will act as a cap to basically prevent exposure to any contamination because these are things that you have to ingest or come into direct contact with in order to be affected by. So if we can prevent that and we can keep it capped and maintain that, we are protecting human health and allowing redevelopment of the site. So some of the tools that we have within Metro, um, not as many as I would like, but we do have our Metro's revolving loan fund for Brownfield's cleanup. So if a developer wants to redo a Brownfield, right, they can go get financing for, from a bank to build the building. No bank will finance remediation of contaminants. It is very risky, and banks don't like to take that risk. So with a, a, a grant from the EPA, we maintain this loan fund where we can offer developers a low interest, very favorable term loan that will finance the cleanup, and then they can complete that with financing from the bank to do the actual development. We did that for the Edison Center, and we're doing it for Louisville Chemical at 6th and Jefferson. 
And from that loan fund, we can also do some grants to actually give that money as a grant. And so for the Urban Leagues project at Heritage West, we're giving them a $350,000 grant that will pretty much cover the cost of their remediation. Beyond that, we work with the State Department of Environmental Protection to get assessments done. So actually going in, taking samples on a site to see what is there, what needs to be done to clean it up. Um, we have technical assistance through the EPA. And to me, all of this really ties together, right? So when we redevelop a brownfield, we're protecting human health, we're engaging the community to make that a community buy-in on that project. We're addressing a lot of issues, including environmental justice issues. So these are all tools that we have and they're all a part of this broad sustainability effort. There's a lot going on in Louisville, and we're trying to pull all of those together so that we kind of move in the same direction. And that's what we hope to do in the Office of Advanced Planning and Sustainability, is to be a convener around this, but also take the lead on these initiatives. Thank you for the invitation, I really appreciate it. Thank you, questions? That was Dr. Allison S. Smith, Community Engagement Strategist and Brownfields Program Manager at Louisville Metro's Office of Advanced Planning and Sustainability. Now, there were some questions from the audience after her talk. The first one was from a student who asked about the sustainability of her work with Brownfields. For instance, in converting them into green space, here is what she said. I'll answer this uh, a couple of ways. First, to me, cleaning up a brownfield is always going to be sustainable. I know that if you'll look at it, there's going to be quite a bit of green space. So going from just a concrete cover to green space is going to be very sustainable. They will have to manage their stormwater on site so that there'll be sustainable aspects there. They do want to plant trees where they can. We have to be careful with that because if you have a cap over contamination, you need to be careful not to break it, but they'll do some tree plantings. And, you know, we've talked about things like lighter services for parking and that sort of thing, doing a white roof on their facility instead of that black asphalt. So, yes, that has definitely been a part of the conversation. And it was part of the decision when we selected between the four proposals. Sustainability is one of the criteria that we looked at. Then there is a question about how our office gets the word out to the public, like using social media. And, and bear with us, we are working with communication, right? This Every local government faces this. We don't have a marketing budget, right? So we work really hard to get the word out. So we are on social media. If you follow the Develop Louisville Facebook page, that will tell you about all of these events, and not just ours, but throughout Metro. We do have a sustainability e-newsletter. Um, I think that's actually going to go out later this week. And honestly, if you friend me on Facebook, you'll find out about a lot of stuff. <laughs> so, so we do we do try really hard through social media and other things. And, you know, part of it is just kind of paying attention. We do get some news coverage, um, but if you follow those, you'll find out a lot about, about a lot of events. Then there is a question about using trees to clean contaminated land. So can clean, trees clean contaminants? Yes, you're talking about bioremediation. This is relatively new, but it is gaining ground, and we do have some companies here in Louisville that use this. So there are a few different types of bioremediation techniques, and it depends on the specific contaminants. So trees can clean some. Canaf grass has been found to remediate a lot of things. I, I believe it's PAHs out of the soil. It's really fast growing, so it grows like eight or 10 feet in a season. Uh, you can also use different types of fungus. 
um, or bacteria. So you can inject different types of bacteria into the soil and they will actually do that remediation. So the, the problem with the phytoremediation, so using plants is, once those, once those plants take up the contaminants, that has to be disposed of, right? So you gotta think about what it is you're planting, where it's going, and then how do you get rid of it? But it, it is an option that is used, not as commonly. Um, it's a little more expensive and you know, there's some, still some uh, questions around it, but it is something that is happening and we're, we're getting much better at. Then there is a question about land developers. What is her office doing to get more trees planted on newly developed property like subdivisions? Yes, so Metro Council is currently looking at an update to our land development code. So the land development code are the rules for when you build a development, essentially. And so we have proposed an update to the land development code from my department, Develop Louisville, that lays out stricter rules about protecting our tree canopy. So one of the changes to that ordinance would be that if a site has been clear cut, like you described within the last two years, you're not going to get a permit to develop, right? Because that's what happens a lot of times is they clear cut it and then they develop it. So if that's happened in the last two years, you don't get a pass. Another issue is that, remember, within Louisville, there are lots of um, consolidated cities that have their own rules about zoning. So Metro cannot always determine what the rules for trees are in, say, Shively or Fern Creek or Jaytown. So sometimes they have their own rules. We are now going to require that when you build, you have to put in street trees. So if you build a house, if you build a factory, if you build a strip mall, there's gotta be street trees, right? So we're, we're increasing both preserving our tree canopy because we're losing it too fast. So we're reducing our loss, but we're also requiring more tree plantings. And with those subdivisions, so this has come up around the Floyd's Fork plan, right? So you've got the parklands, um, you've got lots of space that people want to live there and the developers want to build homes there. So we're trying to get away from these cookie cutter subdivisions that kind of take up the whole space. And a lot of this has to do with zoning. So there are some things we can change and some things we can't, but what we can do is incentivize what we call low impact development. So we can tell a developer, we will give you incentives if you agree to leave 50% of that site as green space, and we'll let you cluster the same number of houses on a smaller area, right? So instead of requiring you have to have a half acre lot, you can have a smaller lot and the same number of houses, but you leave 50% of that as green space. So we're looking at how we can, development is gonna happen, right? That is the reality that we live in. How can we lessen the impact and preserve the reason people want to move there, right? The clean creek, the beautiful park. So there are tools in our toolbox that we are addressing that. So we need input on that. So if you are interested in that, contact your council member and tell them you support the tree ordinance. I mean, that's, you know, that's what it's gonna take is support from the community. We've proposed the changes and now it's in Metro Council's hand. And then there is a question about opportunities for students to get involved in things like urban gardening on the west end of town. Here's what she said. We have done that on um, a few lots. I helped with the Parkland Community Garden at 28th and Dumanil. What has been found, not just here, but nationally, is that that really has to come from the neighborhood. It has to be the neighbor saying, we want a community garden. We're going to buy into it. We're going to help build it. And then you call in people to help make that happen. But without that buy-in before, you know, you can't just build it and they will come. That being said, there are opportunities like that. So... For example, we have a Brightside cleanup coming this Saturday. So Operation Brightside is a metro department that focuses on litter, abatement, and tree planting. So they look for volunteers all the time, and they will work with students to do a neighborhood cleanup. It's 
amazing what picking up some litter will do for the quality of life in a neighborhood, right? The less litter there is on the ground, the less likely people are to throw some. I know it's an ongoing battle, but if you keep doing it, things will improve. And they do tree plantings, you know, especially in neighborhoods that have the lowest tree canopy. So there are ways to get involved. Um, we worked with some students who came here for the Ecological Society of America conference and kind of looked at what help could they provide. So stay in touch with me, and as those opportunities come up, I can pass them on. Now, this lecture is a recording from last month, so the Operation Brightside volunteer event she advertised here is it's over now, so don't go down there. But check out Operation Brightside, their website, their Facebook page for future work opportunities. And then the next question was about how the city is supporting urban agriculture. We do have the Jefferson County Extension Service office. So the Extension Service was developed, I think, in the 40s to have a presence in every state, and their job was to support farmers. So the Jefferson County office supports urban agriculture here in Jefferson County. So they help develop, whether you want to garden in your backyard or if you want to start a community garden, they support those efforts. They can help you with soil testing. And if you know you don't want to go down that road, you can always do raised beds and bring in clean fill. You can garden literally anywhere, right? It's just taking the appropriate precautions. Even in contaminated spaces, depending on what you're growing, it may or may not impact it. So the Extension Service has really been a great partner to make sure people are doing that safely. Good. Then there was a question about how local institutions like Bellarmine University can contribute to building a more sustainable community. I think as an institution, and I don't know what work has been done, but looking, what are your greenhouse gas emissions, right? Do you have a greenhouse gas reduction target? Do you have a strategy to meet that? We've seen a lot of cities, institutions saying, look, we want to go 100% renewable. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't get your energy necessarily from coal, but you can offset it in other ways. You can support renewable energy to offset your use so you end up being you know, carbon neutral. You know, that's a big institutional initiative, but, you know, places, cities, institutions are, are looking at that. I think that when the institution takes the lead and says, we're going to cut our greenhouse gas emissions, that spurs personal change, right? Because it doesn't matter how much I recycle, right? As long as lg is burning coal, we're still going to have those. But if we take large changes at the institutional and the municipal level, I think that encourages people to take individual initiative to, to make those changes. Great. And then finally... How is Louisville Metro going to get the rest of the city to appropriately respond to this declared climate emergency? So I think when we release our emissions reduction plan, we're going to have targets and strategies for commercial buildings, for residential. And we're going to say, look, we need to cut emissions by X amount. Here are strategies to do that. So we have things like the cool roof rebate. We have the EPAD program. We're going to be looking at how can we implement those strategies and how can we get everybody on board to meet that target. So I think that we've had a lot of people ask, what does this climate emergency mean? And we're going to release that, right? You're going to see an emissions reduction plan. You're going to see a climate adaptation plan. And I think when those strategies come out, that will give us something to talk to the public with, to have a discussion with institutions and corporate partners, say, what can you do to help us reach this goal? And that's where our bold actions will come from that will really move this forward. All right, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks to Dr. Allison S. Smith of Louisville Metro for letting us broadcast her talk at Bellarmine from last month. We do want to thank also Beth Bell and Dr. Martha Carlson Mazur of the Department of Environmental Studies at Bellarmine University for making this broadcast possible. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. 
we think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.